and welcome to episode 22 of Once Upon a Nightmare, the final episode of the year. Hope you all had a nice Christmas, especially under these strange circumstances. I am, of course, your host, Lorraine, and I'm here to discuss the horrors of the world, be it fiction or real. This week, we are going very much real as I discuss a massacre that occurred in a very small community in a remote part of Alaska that was a small village known as McCarthy. March 1st, 1983, McCarthy, Alaska had only 22 citizens. On that day, six would be murdered. Maxine Edwards, Harley King, Les and Flo Hegland, and Tim and Amy Nash. They would all meet their fate at the hands of neighbor, Louis D. Hastings. Alaska is a state that's not for the faint-hearted. While it has beautiful landscape, it's a very unforgiving place. It attracts individuals looking for adventure as they try and navigate their way through the most unrelenting terrain. If the terrain doesn't get you, the animals might, home to some of the most dangerous animals on the planet, black bears, polar bears, bald eagles and wolves. And while all these beautiful creatures would be truly amazing to see in the flesh, you don't ever really want to be that close to them. Is a place so remote you can go there to disappear, leave the chaos of the world behind and live off the land. A place where you have to have a certain mindset to be able to actually survive and probably stand being there. No phones, no social media, just you and your thoughts. Certain areas people do move to just to simply live off the grid and that is the case for the residents of McCarthy. While it has seen its highs and lows in numbers with regards to its population, the most it ever reached was 133. They don't have electricity or running water. They're completely hidden from the hustle and bustle of the world we know and away from modern technology. Whilst it's very quiet, a remote place, that wasn't always the case. In the 1900s, copper was discovered in Kennecott, five miles from McCarthy. This brought in investors who formed Kennecott Copper Corporation. In Kennecott, there was no drinking or gambling, so its workers would go to the nearby McCarthy to party the night away. After 30 years, the corporation had depleted the copper resources and the town was abandoned and to this day it sits as a ghost town. As a result, McCarthy became quiet, it became a secluded place and this was how its residents liked it. It's a place that if you want something, you build it, you want entertainment, you make it, you want water, you fetch it. It's all on you. This was the perfect location for Lewis Hastings, a man who just wanted to get away from it all, live off the land and leave behind the outside world. Lewis D. Hastings was born January 1st, 1944 in Leewood, Kansas in the United States. Hastings was a quiet, shy child who suffered from depression. His father on returning from World War II was not fond of his young son and let him know it. He would abuse him psychologically. As he grew up, he was known as a gentleman who cared for the environment and animals. He would volunteer his services, for example, to help clean birds after an oil spill, and most people just knew him as an introvert. Hastings was also a computer programmer working in Stanford University. There he would meet his future wife, librarian Mandolin Stovall. In 1979, they would marry in a honeymoon near McCarthy, Alaska. Having loved the area, they decided to quit their jobs and move to Anchorage, where Hastings would set up his own business, a computer services company. This company would not do so well and eventually it would have to close down. He and his wife did purchase a cabin near McCarthy, but it soon became apparent that his marriage was also failing too. His wife wouldn't really visit the cabin as much as he would and she chose to stay in Anchorage. Hastings wanted a life in the unspoiled wilderness of Alaska. Having lived in California, he thought this was a perfect location to be at one with nature and all her natural resources. 
he didn't quite get the utopia he had hoped for. While Alaska has miles and miles of beautiful landscape, wild animals and remoteness, it also has one more thing. Something many a businessman would want, money. And that money came in the form of oil. Lots and lots of oil. After the discovery in 1968, it was determined that a pipeline would be built to transport the oil. This pipeline is some site. I'm telling you, look it up. It's 800 miles long and was completed on May 31st, 1977 and runs from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez and it goes right through Alaska. Feeling the pipeline was destroying the beauty of Alaska, Hastings decided he would destroy it. To achieve this goal, he would have to commandeer a plane and crash it into the pipeline. As he began to hatch his plan, he realised that to get what he wanted, he would need to kill everyone as he didn't want anyone to be able to identify him as the person that did this. This would mean, of course, killing any witnesses and the pilot of the plane so he could then steal it from him. Hastings, who would normally keep to himself most days, began to make his way to Chris Richards' home on the morning of March 1st, 1983. Chris, a resident of McCarthy, saw Hastings coming and decided to put some water on the stove to make tea, thinking his friend was just simply making an impromptu visit. Obviously not suspecting anything strange, Hastings knocked on the door and Chris let him in and offered him a cup of tea. As he turned round to get a mug to pour the tea into, Hastings raised his hands. Hastings has concealed a weapon in his gloves so there was no way Chris could have noticed. He then fired a shot into Chris's face. Chris feeling the impact, he's unsure what has caused this as Hastings has put a homemade silencer on the gun. Chris, not taking any chances, manages to grab a knife and stab Hastings once he realises what's actually happened. He runs out into the snow to escape but Hastings is hot on his trail with a 223 caliber Ruger Mini 14 semi-automatic rifle, which he had left outside. The gun in the gloves had jammed, so this saved Chris's life, giving him that short window to escape. Chris, knowing that he could harm others, bravely tries to make his way to his neighbors. He does this while being hunted and continuously shot at by Hastings. While there are a few cabins in the area, they are quite spread out, so Chris has to plow through waist-high snow, injured, and he does all this to get help and alert the others. Chris did come across a cabin though, but he doesn't stay. There isn't anyone there. Hastings, thinking he is in there, burns it to the ground. Now thinking Chris is dead, he makes his way to the other residence. As Chris continues to run for his life, he made his way to the cabin of the young newlyweds, Tim and Amy Nash. Tim was only 38 and Amy 25. Amy had come out to McCarthy to stay in a cabin and being single and it being a very small place, she met up with Tim, who was also single, and they hit it off. After the initial shock of Chris bursting into their cabin with gunshot wounds, they bandaged him up and placed him on a sleigh at the back of their snowmobile and drove him to the airstrip. They met the pilot of a plane, Gary Green, who had seen Hastings heading towards the Hedlund's home. Les and Flo Hedlund were the town's unofficial postmasters. Due to the amount of snow, their only outside link to the world was a plane that landed once a week, weather permitting. If the plane can't land, they are stuck. Longtime resident Gary Green, who lived there at the time of the massacre, spoke of how there was nothing available for them to make contact to the outside world. You want contact, you either have to leave it or speak to a pilot. The plane would come on a Tuesday and the people of McCarthy would congregate at the Heglin's home to have coffee and cobbler as they awaited for all their goods to arrive. This would be their mail and their groceries. This was a weekly ritual. They would sit and enjoy each other's company and have a bit of a catch up. 
After the get-together, they would head to the landing strip by snowmobile or dog sleigh to meet the plane. In the winter, this was the only form of communication they had. There was no radio and there was no way to drive in and out due to the extreme weather. And if the plane couldn't land, they were completely cut off. Tim knew he had to go check on the headlands as Hasted was spotted heading that way by Gary. When Tim arrived to the home, he was too late. Both Les and Flo had been murdered along with friend Maxine Edwards, who had visited the headlands to wait for the mail plane. Maxine was married to Jim and they were two weeks away from celebrating their 25 years of marriage. Jim had lived in McCarthy for about 50 years. He moved there with his wife to build a home for themselves. This particular day, Maxine was heading to the headlands as she was expecting an anniversary present from her children. They had sent a silver platter. As she made her way there, she was completely unaware of what happened to Chris and the danger that was coming her way. After shooting Les Flo and Maxine, Hastings made sure that all his victims were dead by following up the attack with a shot to the head. While Tim was in the house, he spotted Hastings. Knowing what he had did because of what Chris had told him, he fired his gun and Hastings fired back, hitting Tim in the leg. Tim then fled the scene and headed back to the airfield to inform the others about what he'd seen. Tim wanted his wife to leave with Gary and Chris, but she refused, and this decision would prove to be fatal. The Nashes were to wait behind to warn others about what was going on. And Gary was able to warn an incoming plane not to land, and he also was able to contact the police to report the shootings. The Nashes would soon meet their fate as they were vulnerable out in the open once the plane had left. Hastings spotted them from a distance and shot them both. And again, once he got up close, he then fired again into both bodies, making sure they were dead. He would then try and drag their bodies out of sight. After the murder of the Nashes, Harley King and Donna Byron made their way to the airstrip on Harley's snowmobile. Donna was supposed to be flying out that day with the mail plane, so Harley said he'd give her a ride. They dismounted the snowmobile and began to walk over a snowbank and spotted the blood on the snow. At first, they believed that someone had butchered an animal and began then to walk in the direction of where the Nashes were. And then Hastings spotted them and then began to fire. Harley and Donna both tried to escape on the snowmobile. As Hastings began firing, he hit Donna in the arm and then Harley lost control of the snowmobile. Harley then got shot in the leg, breaking it. Donna did try to rescue Harley by getting him on the snowmobile, but she wasn't able to do so. He told her there was nothing they could do and for her to just simply run. As she escaped into the trees, she heard Hastings shoot Harley twice. Donna then headed to the headlands, but when she arrived, she was too afraid to go into the home, so she hid outside in their greenhouse. She could hear Hastings outside searching for her, and he also began taunting her by calling, he's not dead yet, obviously speaking about Harley. Donna sat there bleeding from her arm in the freezing cold weather, trying not to make a sound. Luckily for Donna, though, Hastings gave up and she was able to sit there until help arrived. After the murders, Hastings would load up two duffel bags and fill them with guns and ammunitions. He would steal the snowmobile of the Nashes. He would then head off into the wilderness, but his escape was not successful as he was soon captured by state troopers around 2pm as they flew over the area and spotted him. The helicopter also spotted multiple dead bodies before finding the killer. The pilot commented that it was just like Nam due to all the bloodshed. As you can imagine, the blood-soaked snow would be extremely visible from a height. On spotting the snowmobile, they were unsure as to who was driving it. It could have been a survivor just simply trying to get away. Hastings kept going for a bit longer, but he did eventually stop by a helicopter as it landed. They can see that he has a lot of weaponry on him and they do not know whether he will go quietly or try to take them out too. 
He is close to the snowmobile, which carries loaded guns, and they can't afford to take any chances. He keeps raising his hands like he's surrendering, but then they said he kept putting them down again. Hastings would then change tactics and started telling them he was Chris Richards, not knowing that Chris was in fact in Glenallen Hospital. But if he was actually a survivor, he would have just simply raised his hands and stepped away from the guns immediately, and he would have identified himself sooner. He wouldn't have toyed with them the way he did. But also they had a description of the shooter, so they knew he was lying. They soon arrested him and then he admitted that he was the lone gunman responsible for the slaughter. Once they had Hastings, they also had to do a sweep and find any survivors and check the homes. Donna was at the Headlands, did her voices as the help did eventually arrive, but understandably though, she was a bit apprehensive. Fearing it was Hastings coming back, she didn't at first come out, but they did manage to eventually entice her. The troopers then checked the Headlands home where they found Les and Flo and of course Maxine and all were deceased. The bodies had been moved from where they were murdered to another room. Jim worrying about his wife and still no idea about what happened heads over to the Headlands on his snowmobile to see where she is and is met by police who take him into the house and there he sees a pile of bodies where Maxine has been placed on the top. While the murders were finally over and no one else could be harmed, it was not over for the residents of McCarthy as they awaited to hear the sentence Hastings would receive. Lewis D. Hastings was convicted of six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder, which he was found guilty and received a sentence of 634 years. However, Hastings did appeal and Superior Court Judge Ralph E. Moody vacated the attempted murder charge. He was though resentenced in February 2004 by Judge Bulger for attempted murder. Hastings, of course, tried to plead insanity, but this was dismissed. The residents of McCarthy are still there, but unfortunately Chris did die later in a house fire. He was good friends with Lewis Hastings and they would play chess together. They did spend a lot of time together. He was really the only one that they spent time with, but most of the time Hastings was alone. Chris apparently had a lot of survivor's guilt and he was never the same and he also carried a handgun around after the murders. He said he wanted to be able to protect his neighbours if this was to ever happen again. The residents of McCarthy never knew of the anger that was building up inside of Hastings. They just thought of him as a quiet man who didn't say much and kept himself to himself most of the time. They didn't know that he was out practicing killing by using rabbits to see if he could actually kill a living thing. This practice on rabbits then led to humans. He knew if he could kill a rabbit, then he could kill a human. Some people see Alaska as one of the very few places in America and maybe the world that hasn't become like everywhere else overpopulated, technology, greed, modern living in a sense, all the things Hastings despised about the world. A place untouched that should be left untouched. The irony is, had he been successful in his mission, think of the damage that that explosion would have done to the wildlife and to the landscape. After his plan to get a plane and crash it into the Alaskan pipeline, he was then going to kill himself. He didn't want any of his family to know that it was him that did this, hence to why he was going to murder everybody within McCarthy. He didn't want anyone to identify him. He didn't want any witnesses left behind. And that is the story of the massacre in McCarthy. But now for something completely different from my podcast promo this week, I want to mention someone who I think is super awesome for what she does. I'd like to give a shout out to this podcast because I'll be completely honest, I don't know how the fuck she does it. 
I think it's so important to highlight these cases as what has happened to these, you know, these poor little children is beyond abhorrent and it takes a certain kind of evil to hurt a kid. Hopefully one day in the nicest possible way, there will be no cases for her to cover. So have a listen to the promo of Suffer the Little Children. AJ Frund, Alyssa Guernsey, Thomas Valva, Triana Somerville, Noah Tomlin, Arabella Parker. What do these kids have in common? They were fundamentally failed by the very people they trusted with their lives. This is Suffer the Little Children, the true crime podcast giving voices back to the victims of child abuse and shining a harsh spotlight on the parents, guardians, and caretakers who silence them. I'm your host, Lane. During each weekly episode, I'll dive deep into a different case of child abuse murder, often including audio clips and conducting interviews with family members or other major players in the cases I cover. Calling attention to these tragic stories can lead to positive changes in the systems designed to protect children. These kids deserve to have their stories told and their voices heard. Subscribe to Suffer the Little Children on your favorite podcast platform. Also, make sure you go rate and review her and follow her on all the social medias. Anyway, I'd like to say thank you for listening and don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. I really do appreciate all the feedback and I've had some really nice comments, which I appreciate. And also to all those who have promoted in some form, I really do appreciate that. Um, And I'd just like to say, I hope you all have a amazing new year and I will talk to you again in January or it may be January now when you're listening to this. But if you want even more of me, you can find me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, on Twitter as A Nightmare Pod, on Letterboxd as A Nightmare Pod, email me as onceuponanightmarepod at gmail.com and I'm on Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare. And you can also find me on the other podcast I do, which is Show Me the Podcast, where I talk film and TV with my best mates. You can go check that out too. And uh, for now, I'd like to say goodbye and I will chat to you soon. Bye. The Pod Breed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Pod Breed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com.